0: Today's episode is sponsored by Cindy Studs.
1: Hey, I'm Cindy, and I'm the owner and creator of Cindy Suds. We make all-natural bath, body, and home products for families seeking to create a healthier environment for their families. You can find us locally at Kingless, Harvest Health, Hopscotch, and several other local retailers. And if you're outside of the West Michigan area, you can always look us up online, www.cindysuds.com.
0: Hello, welcome to another episode of Ask the Doulas with Gold Coast Doulas. I am Alyssa. I am co-owner and postpartum doula, and we are talking to Rebecca of Love Your Birth. Again, she is our placenta encapsulator. Hello, Rebecca. Hi. Um, Last time you were on, we briefly touched on um, GBS. And for those uh, who don't know what it is, I want you to explain a little bit more about the article that came out. I believe it was June of last year, 2017. Um, can you tell us about the article and how it kind of upset the encapsulation community?
1: Yeah, definitely. It, I mean, placenta encapsulation is already a hot topic. Mm-hmm. And then this case study came out, and it's just, whew, it blew up a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, the the uh, article came out in June, but the case was actually from September of 2016. Okay. And they just published the case study in June of 2017. Okay. And so the case, the details of the case a woman gave birth in a hospital and uh, she was screened for GBS in pregnancy, like a lot of women are. She was and screened. You, what is GBS? Yeah, so okay, GBS uh, is group B streptococcus. Okay. It's a bacteria. That is actually very commonly found in a normal person's digestive tract. Okay. It's a normal part of your flora. So, group B strep. I mean, I've heard that. Yeah, group B strep. Group B streptococcus. Same thing. Same thing. thing. GBS. Okay. It's a very common bacteria found in your digestive tract. Okay. a normal part of your flora. And because of a woman's anatomy, there's a good chance that her vagina can get colonized with GBS. Okay. Because, you know. Pregnant or not. No, yeah. Pregnant or not. Um, because our anatomy, you know, they're so close together, the vagina and the rectum, they're so close together. And so um, GBS can be colonized in the vagina. Depending on the study that you look at, up to 30% of, you know, a normal healthy person um, has GBS in okay. the vagina. Okay. And there's a huge difference between just colonization, which is just the bacteria being present, versus it causing an infection. And that happens when there's an overpopulated amount of the GBS. And so GBS colonization can potentially lead to uh, an infection in the baby during the birthing process, which is why it's so routine that they test it when you're you know, having medical care. They want to test it in pregnancy just to... Um, have a precaution so that's why there's a lot of women who have to have antibiotics and labor because they're they want to minimize the amount of bacteria that's in her vagina during the birthing process so um this woman got tested in pregnancy around 37 weeks which is very routine and she had a negative gbs status okay and also to kind of go back gbs is a transient bacteria so you might test positive for it one day, and next week they test again, and it's not there. It just kind of comes in and out, you know, depending on the food that you ate that week or, you know, how your immune system is, like, like where you are in your cycle. You yeah, like exactly. Like all these things, right? You know, were you sick? So was your body having a hard time fighting off, you know, the bad bacteria or, you know, kind of keeping stable the normal gut flora? So mm-hmm. it's kind of like a yeast infection. Yeah. Yeast is always in the vagina, but it's when... It gets overpopulated that it causes a problem, right? It's just like GBS,
0: right? That's what I was kind of thinking to in my head. That's what I was relating to. Yeah. Like
1: kind of similar. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So this woman got tested, you know, in pregnancy normally, she had a negative GBS status. And then, um, when she gave birth shortly after her baby were, uh, was developing signs of an infection. And so, they started treating the baby before their test came back, but it actually came back that the baby had GBS neonatal sepsis. Okay. So, the baby was sick. During pregnancy,
0: contracted, is that we call it, like contracted GBS? Or, sorry, um, during delivery. Yes,
1: during delivery. During delivery. Yes. Okay. Um, so, that is known as an early onset neonatal sepsis. Okay. where They the found baby, it right away. They found it right away. It showed up immediately postpartum. Early onset GBS infection happens within that first week. Okay, okay. So the baby got treated, was in the hospital, you know, got sent to the NICU, was treated with antibiotics for 11 days. They thought it was resolved. sent the baby home. Five days later, after the baby got sent home, uh, the baby started having uh, more symptoms of an issue. So she went to a different hospital, and it was confirmed that the baby had GBS neonatal stasis again. And this is known as late-onset GBS infection. Just because it's past that one-week mark? Exactly. Okay. Anything past a week, it's known as late-onset. Because early-onset is most commonly um, happens during the birthing process. Okay. Late-onset GBS infection can come from the birthing process, but it can also happen uh, from environmental factors. So nursing staff touching the baby, doctors touching the baby, You know, um, family or friends touching the baby, that can uh, colonize and infect the baby, too. So those are the two main differences between early and late. Early happens most likely from the birthing process. Late onset happens generally from environmental factors. Can breastfeeding be an environmental factor that would give it later or not? Um, It can, there's that potential, okay. And that's actually a, a big point from this specific case study okay. is that they ended up testing the expressed breast milk to see if it came through her okay her breast milk and her breast milk was negative, so it wasn't it wasn't breast milk, no, it okay. wasn't breast milk. Okay, so the baby went back to the hospital five days later after you know initially resolving that first early onset, and it came back that the baby had GBS late onset infection again and when the doctors were kind of asking this specific client questions uh it came out that she had her placenta encapsulated and started taking them on day three so here's an important factor the baby had neonatal sepsis before she started taking the placenta pills right Okay. On day one. On day one. Okay. She didn't have pills on day one. She did not have pills. (laughs) She did not have pills when the baby first got diagnosed with neonatal sepsis. So the doctors realized that she had, you know, ingested her placenta, and they um, recommended that she stop taking them. Once the baby got diagnosed for the second time, they told her to stop taking the pills. Um, Then they. You know, tested the breast milk to see if that was a route of infection for the baby. They also tested the placenta pills. And the placenta pills came back positive for the same strain of GBS. And the breast milk came back negative. Hmm. So they associated the infection with the placenta pills. So the pills were positive, but it wasn't coming through her breast milk. So, so it's not because she
0: ingested them. Right. Would it have been just from touching Touching, physically touching
1: the pills and then touching her baby. Yes. Okay. So they go into that part in the actual study where they actually, this is, I'm quoting the article here. Although transmission from other colonized household members could not be ruled out, the final diagnosis was late onset GBS disease attributable to high maternal colonization secondary to consumption of GBS infected placental tissue. But if – so even though the pills were infected, you're, it's, it
0: sounds to me like her body kind of defeated that. Like um, there was there was nothing coming out of her breast milk. So okay. even though the pills were infected, her body rectified that, and there wasn't anything coming out of her breast milk. Mm-hmm. So her body took care of that
1: mm-hmm. um, naturally. Right.
0: So it was literally physical touch. And it might exactly. not have even been from her touching the pills. It could have been from, like you said, a family member who –
1: yeah. Was yeah. Also, in this article, they go over the encapsulation process and the method of the company that she went through to get her pills encapsulated. And on her website, she goes over that she cleans the placenta, she slices it, she puts in dehydrator at temperature of one fifteen to one sixty degrees Fahrenheit. Which is a huge range. Mm-hmm. It's a huge range. So it's very unclear what this specific pl- placenta, how it was processed. Because there's such a big range. It's also unclear what her sanitation protocol was. You know, how she cleaned her space. It goes over that she cleans the placenta and rinses it off. But it doesn't talk about how she cleans her space. How she cleans her equipment. What supplies she uses. That's very unclear. But yeah, did the fact right before this one have GBS and... Yeah, she didn't clean her space. Yeah, okay. So the unknown factors regarding placenta encapsulation in this study: how was the placenta handled and processed, and what was the sanitation protocol Mm -hmm. for this specific encapsulator? Could someone else have transmitted the GBS to the baby in that postpartum period? You know, was it a friend, a family member? Were they colonized with GBS, and then it got onto the baby? Could the late-onset GBS infection just be a recurrence of the first one? Like, yeah, the baby was um, treated for 11 days, but maybe it didn't actually completely get resolved mm-hmm. because only five days later, the baby was sick again. So it could have just been a recurrence from that original infection. Or could the mother have unknowingly contaminated the pills herself? because we already know that she was already highly colonized because her baby got GBS infection immediately postpartum so you know does she have good hygiene and nothing against this mom but like did she go to the bathroom and not wash her hands and then well, take well I mean I,
0: as a new mom your baby's crying and you have to pee I've sat down to pee holding my baby yeah like, I exactly. mean you're just you're, you you are low on hands and time like you just you exactly. crazy <laughs> so all it would take is one pee on that toilet holding your baby or not washing your hands, mm-hmm. and boom, right? Yeah, exactly. As mothers, well as we, we do crazier things than that, but, right. I, you know, it's it could have happened.
1: So it might not have even been that the placenta was, um, you know, she could have contaminated, recontaminated them herself. There's just so many unknown right. factors for this. Right. And the big point is that this is one case study I think a lot of people get confused that this is scientific research, but it's not. It was one, one instance. Case study. Yeah. Can you tell me about your...
0: So anyone who is afraid of this, you know, maybe I was thinking of encapsulating, I read this article. Now I'm like, no way. Um, how do you reassure parents? Like, what are your protocols? Um, how do you... How do I know as a parent who's going to encapsulate that everything is safe. And you mentioned the difference between 115 and 160 mm-hmm. degrees. Um, if this encapsulator um, dehydrated at 115, is that enough? Is that sanitary? Like It's
1: not. No, yeah, that's a great question. 115 is not enough. That is actually uh, creates when there's a little bit of warmth, but not enough to kill the bacteria, it creates kind of a, bre- a breeding ground for okay. bacteria. So at 115 degrees Fahrenheit, it's actually promoting bacteria. Kind growth. of, again, like a yeast infection. Exactly. So if it's dark and warm, like it's yeah. going to grow. We're like, you know, the change in your body's pH. Like, if it's too low or too high, you're going to have an issue if it's not balanced. So, so if she did this at 115, that could be a factor mm-hmm. instead of Yeah, if the placenta already had GBS on it and she dehydrated it at 115, that would highly colonize the placenta even more because it created a breeding ground. And so what temperature do you recommend? 160. And you always do it at 160. I always do it at 160. And I actually have my blog um, about my response to this case study on my blog. I have on there that I dehydrate between 155 and 165. But I said that just because on my dehydrator, those are the two markers on it. 155 and then the next one is 165. But I Put it right in the middle at 160. But that's, that's you know, the the best temperature to dehydrate a placenta at 160 degrees. And it's also important to know the amount of time that the placenta gets dehydrated. Like, if I, if I put a, uh, a placenta in the dehydrator at 160 degrees for only an hour, that's not going to do much It's the same with cooking meat, right? Yeah, it's you know, not it's, do it. it's either done or... Exactly. Not. It has to be a certain amount of time to kill that bacteria. And so I encapsulate my placentas and I, well not mine, but the placentas that I work on for at least 24 hours.
0: Okay. At least 24 hours. And how do you know it's done? You know, is there a placenta thermometer? Like how do you,
1: there is not a placenta thermometer, (laughs) but what I do, and this is, you know, standard across all of, all of the encapsulators and, and their protocol, um, when you take a placenta out of the dehydrator, you check each piece to make sure that it's completely dry. And you know that by breaking that piece. And if it snaps, like a stick, like if it snaps, okay. like a, a completely dried stick, if it mm-hmm. snaps, you know it's done. But if there's any resistance... Like if it bends if instead of it snapping. Okay. It's not done. Okay. And so um, for bigger placentas, it takes longer to dehydrate and so oftentimes I have my placentas in the dehydrator for 36 to 48 hours because that's how long it takes yeah and I want to be 100% sure that that placenta is done because the safety of my clients is priority it's the most important thing I want to make sure that my clients are safe I want to make sure that that placenta is completely dehydrated before I put it into the pills because if there's any moisture left into it mold can grow that can ruin the capsules and the client will get sick. Yeah. So I'm very diligent about my, my process.
0: Um, so what other processes are involved um, with sanitation? I'm sure that's huge.
1: Yes. Uh, lots of bleach. Yeah. <laughs> my house is very clean because I use <laughs> so much bleach. Um, so the all of my equipment is cleaned before and after use uh, to prevent cross contamination. I use a 20% bleach solution on all of uh, my surfaces that I use, on all of the equipment that cannot be submerged into a bleach bath. I use a lot of disposable items to prevent cross-contamination. So the, the main equipment that I have that I'll use for each placenta is my dehydrator, because I'm not going to get a new dehydrator every time I process a placenta. That would be an yes. expensive yes. encapsulation process. It would be. <laughs> um, the grinder that I use. I use the same grinder for each placenta. Um, yeah, I think those, those are really the main things. Okay. Yeah, the grinder and the dehydrator. It's what I use for every placenta. My disposable items, I use new chucks pads to cover the surfaces okay. of my counter. Um, I use a new cutting board every time. I use new scissors. I use a new strainer. I obviously use new disposable gloves. Um I use uh, a mask to cover my face and my nose so that, you know, if I'm stinging while I'm encapsulating somebody's placenta, I'm not going to have, you know, my... Accidental spit. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And so all those get discarded as soon as I'm done with the encapsulation process. When I have, you know, the equipment that needs to be sanitized, the the, oh, the capsule machine is also another one that I'll use for okay. each placenta. Those all get submerged into a bleach bath of at least 10% bleach solution. So okay. one part bleach, nine parts water. Um, those get submerged into a bleach solution for at least 10 minutes. Okay, And that's the amount of time needed to deactivate or kill any bacteria that might be and that's just kind of knowledge that's like and and knowledge. that's probably what a hospital yeah a hospital and, and food safety okay. and blood burn pathogens okay um that's what's needed okay and I say at least 10 minutes but I typically leave them in there for at least 15 or 20 okay just to be sure <laughs> just to be sure <laughs> I I want to be sure uh, I want my clients to be safe and so um I submerge you know the equipment that can be submerged the equipment that can't be I spray it down again with a 20% bleach solution and leave that on there for at least 10 minutes usually longer then I you know wipe it off and then I have to go back and rinse off the bleach residue with hot soapy water and I do the same for the submergible equipment either I'll, I'll wash it by hand with hot soapy water, or I put it into my dehi- or my um sorry my dishwasher, okay. and it goes through a dishwashing cycle, which is very high temperature, right? <laughs> um, and then I store all of the equipment in a bin that can't get you know dust collected onto it until I I use the, the equipment again for the next placenta. So it sounds really safe. It is very safe. I mean, yeah, I again, it's very important to me, and, and not just for my clients too, but for me as well. Because if I'm handling a placenta that, you know, a client didn't know she had HIV. Right. I have to be careful for my own safety. Right. Right. And so, you know, it's not just my clients. But yeah, that's that's the basic of my sanitation protocol. I also um, have it available for anybody to look at. Okay. So I have And I did
0: just upload it to our
1: website. So if
0: anyone is
1: interested, there's a
0: full list of what Rebecca does to sanitize her space.
1: Yep. I have, you know, day one sanitation protocol and day two sanitation protocol after I dehydrate and put the placenta into capsules. Both of them are essentially the same, but I have to do my sanitation do both days. Yeah, yes, exactly. Well, I And I, I want to be really open. Like I want clients to yeah. feel safe and comfortable. If a client doesn't feel comfortable with my verbal communication of what I do, like you have it right in front of you. Yeah. You can see what, what my process is. Yep. And then they're able to ask you any questions. What does this mean? Yeah. Why do you do this? Definitely. Oh, do you have something else to have add? I just have one last thing to add. Um, and it's a really important thing. So it is general practice for any encapsulator to contraindicate encapsulating a placenta if there's a known infection. Right. And that's that's one thing that didn't get pointed out in this article is that, you know, maybe the mom didn't tell the encapsulator that her baby, you know, was confirmed to have neonatal sepsis. But if a client comes to me and says, my baby got sick immediately postpartum, I'm going to say, don't take your pills. Right. Like, don't keep taking them. Right. Because that's a contraindication. Right. So obviously that didn't happen in this instance if... If that were the case, yeah, or the mom decided to keep taking them anyway, which right. is another unknown factor. Right, there's so, there's so many, many, many factors, unknowns. Right, yeah. for
0: one case study to just blow up like exactly.
1: this, yeah. But yes, thank you so much for having me on here. Um, I get really excited talking about this this stuff.
0: And yeah, it's really interesting, and a lot of our clients have a lot of questions, so I'm sure this clears some stuff up for them.
1: Yeah. And you know It would actually kind of be fun if clients, you know, have questions that they want us to do a podcast about. Yeah. I would love to come back, and yeah. we can kind of do, like, a Q&A with, you know, clients. So it would be kind yeah. of Yeah.
0: So if you guys have specific questions that we haven't covered, like, really specific, um, Let us know, email us, and then we can get Rebecca back on to answer those. Well, I hope that um, clears up a lot of the misconceptions about this and any fears related to GBS. Um, You know, again, Rebecca has a blog and she has, um, there's a post on our website, Facebook page, and then if you go to our website, it actually links to your blog and safety protocols as well. So if you have any additional questions or concerns, find her there. You can always find us online at goldcoastdoulas.com. Email us at info at goldcoast And all right, cool. thank you.